So Thanksgiving is coming up, and I forgot to mention earlier that there are no services, no midweek services this week, um, so you can prepare for traveling and family and all that. <clears throat> and I was thinking about Thanksgiving, because every, every sermon on Thanksgiving has been preached, trust me on that, under the sun, it's been done. And I was reading this story, I was studying the book of Acts, and I was reading this story, and man, it, it, it really grabbed me, and I was like, this is, where I, this is what it's something I want to do. And because I'm going to tell you right now, this week, in preparation for Thanksgiving, I have had to eat several slices of humble pie. And if you've ever had to eat humble pie, you understand that God is convicting you of something. And it's important to acknowledge what he's convicting you of, especially in humility. And he's got me this week. Uh, before we read the text, I want to give you just a little background. We're in Acts 14, by the way. If you haven't turned there, we're in the book of Acts chapter 14. This is about Paul and Barnabas going to a city called Lystra. But before that, I need to tell you, to give you a little background, Barnabas and Paul were first in a city called Iconium. And they were preaching in a Jewish synagogue, which was customary of Paul. This is where he preached. He was speaking to both the Jews and the Greeks, and a number of both believed. Both parties believed. However, there were some unbelieving Jews that began to stir up trouble and began to cause problems. They were poisoning the minds. This is what the Bible says. They were poisoning the minds of these Gentiles against Barnabas and Paul, and of course the others who were with them. They continued on in their ministry, though. Paul and Barnabas continued on. They preached and spoke boldly. They performed signs. They performed wonders. And the thing was, what was going on here was uh, division in Iconium. And division is dangerous. Churches know too well how division can be dangerous. Iconium was split, divided. One side was for the Jews. One side was for the apostles. Because here's what happened. There was an attempt being made on Barnabas and Paul to hurt them, to even stone them. They found out about this attempt, this plan, and they fled. And this is where we find our brothers in Christ continuing this same ministry in the city of Lystra. So they left Iconium, the two of them and the people that were traveling with them, and now they're at Lystra. And this is where I want to pick up. We're going to read verses 8 through 18, but I'd like to divide them up. So let's look at verse 8, where we're going to read through 13. It says, Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. Now let's stop there. Let's explain. I'm leading up to the Thanksgiving sermon, but we want to get to the story, to the heart of what's happening here, because you're going to see that we have something very much in common with these Gentiles. This man was crippled from birth. Do not miss that. This man was crippled from birth. Folks, this was not sickness. 
This was not an injury. This is from birth. And there's a parallel Scripture to this. In Acts 3, you don't have to turn there. In Acts 3, Peter and John find a lame beggar at the gates of Jerusalem, placed in a prime spot to receive alms, right? To receive money. They too had an encounter with somebody that was lame from birth. Now the reason I bring up this miracle is this is going to be a catalyst for an awesome thing that Paul does. But let's go back to this. He never walked. But what does the Bible say? He sprang up, right? We'll get to that. We're going to get to that. Let's talk about these gates for a second. Folks, gates in ancient times were a very important place. This was the hustle and bustle of the city. You entered and you exited. You did business there. You met people there. You know when you're out with your family, hey, you guys meet back here at 1015. We're going to meet right here. The gates, this is where it happened. It was noisy. It was busy. And just to share a related story, being from Florida, we live right next door to St. Augustine. And if you've ever heard of St. Augustine, it's a great place to visit. I believe it's the oldest nation or oldest city in the nation. And when I was a kid growing up, it got to be so bad. Musicians, ugh can't stand the musicians. They line, the main cobblestone road, I believe it's called St. George Street, they would line the roads. Folks, it became such a hazard. What, not only was it busy because you had thousands upon thousands of tourists, but they played and it, it, it was so annoying and so loud. The business owners actually complained. And instead of playing in the main streets, they had to play on the side streets that are adjacent. But here's the thing about that. These musicians, the reason there were so many is they made bank. They made so much from these tourists. Tourists came loaded, so they had no problem throwing dollars into these cases. So there were musicians everywhere. The city of St. Augustine said, nope, you have to be on the side streets alone. So you had to get there early to get a prime spot. Because I'm going to tell you now, being from St. Augustine area, the only people that cut down those side roads are locals or people who know where to go to cut through to go to the restroom or find a better restaurant. No one takes those side roads. They stay on the main one. So if you were late, you were halfway down the road. You didn't make any money. You had to be in a prime spot where you could be seen and heard. And it is no different with a lame beggar or a man crippled from birth at the gates. They needed that prime spot so that they could be seen and heard, so attention could be given to them. The gates of ancient cities are extremely important, extremely important. So this man wasn't asking for alms. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But he was listening to Paul. Now Paul was speaking loudly. He was probably preaching there. And he looked at this man. Now this is the Holy Spirit. This is not this, is not this crippled man and Paul connecting. You know, It's not one of those love at first sight things. He is looking intently at Paul. Paul's looking at him and the Holy Spirit is involved here. Because Paul sees that this man has the faith to be made well. So he says in a loud voice, stand up, stand upright on your feet. In fact, Paul and um, excuse me, Peter and John, to their lame beggar in Acts 3, they said, hey, rise up and walk. If you know anything about long-term comas, if you know anything about serious injury, trauma, car wrecks and such, if you know anything about something that keeps you bedridden for a long period of time, you know that when you get up, you cannot use your muscles like you did. You need to be reconditioned. You need to be rehabilitated. You don't just start walking. I heard that lady, that uh, her and her husband, the one that died recently, she took, she's taken four or five steps originally each day, and that's all she could do. 
And there's a lot of people I've known that get up and they walk with those poles or walk with their assistants uh, in rehabilitation. They may take three or four steps and that's it for the day. They're worn out. You have to be reconditioned. You don't just get up and go. Folks, look at the miracle here. From birth, he has never walked and he sprang up and began walking. Now, this would be a sight to see because at these gates, this gentleman would have been a permanent fixture. It'd be like you looking at this pulpit for a year, right? I'm used to that pulpit, that brown pulpit. It's a huge piece of furniture. And then me taking it away, it's gone for another year. And now you're used to it gone, right? And then I bring it back and you're like, whoa, wait a minute, something's different. This is a permanent fixture. So when he sprang up and began walking, the crowds noticed they too lifted their voices. Folks, this was not a quiet event. This was a very, very loud event, very much like our first song this morning. So, here's what happened. These Gentiles, and Lystra was a very Gentile city. Let's go ahead and clear the air there. Very Gentile. They saw this miracle and immediately attributed it to the gods. See, legend stated there was a story in Lystra that the gods had come down once before in the likeness of human form. They knew, and this is good, this is good stuff for people that don't believe in God, they knew that this could not have been performed by mere human ability. we got to give the Gentiles that much in Lystra. They knew that (laughs) humans can't do this, but they attributed it to a higher power. They attributed it to the gods that they worshipped. So this awesome miracle, it was given credit to Zeus and Hermes in the form of Barnabas and Paul. That's where we're at here. Barnabas was in the Roman form, Jupiter. In the Greek, it would have been Zeus. And Paul, and you know, real quick, Barnabas might have been a little bit bigger, possibly an athletic build, and Paul might have been shorter. But Paul was given the message or identification, excuse me, of um, the speaker, the spokesperson, the messenger, which was Hermes. And In the Roman, it's Mercury, and in the Greek, it's Hermes. So they're assigning these two identities to Barnabas and Paul because they see them in human form, but they did not do this miracle. They are Zeus and Hermes. They are gods because humans can't do what they just witnessed at these gates, and there were a lot of witnesses at these gates. By the way, just real quick, ancient cities near the entrance to the city, most of the time, this is where their temple of worship was. Whether it was God or gods, the temple was usually really close to the gate. And here we have the priest finally been able to shine. Because, I mean, I don't think a priest of Zeus had much action, uh, especially since he's not real. Here he gets to come out. He hears about this miracle, and he wants to uh, offer sacrifices to these visiting gods who miraculously healed this man in front of all of them. So he wants to offer sacrifices and pay tribute and give thanks and bring the glory to Zeus and Hermes by sacrificing. Look at verse 14, guys. Look at verses 14 through 16. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. 
in, verse 16, in past generations He allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Let's talk about these verses for a second. Paul and Barnabas, when they saw what was happening, they didn't gently stride into this audience. Please stop. They rushed in, tearing their clothes in grief and lament. They were crying out, why? Why? Why are you doing this? We are like you. We have the nature of a human. We, our nature is like yours. We have the propensity to sin. Guess what? We hunger, we thirst, we bleed. Our nature is like yours. When I was studying this, I was thinking of Herod in Acts 12. By the way, when we mention Herod, you'll hear about King Herod come Christmas time as well. Herod is like saying president. Herod is a, is a title. And then the Herod we're talking about is Herod Agrippa. This particular Herod in Acts 12 delivered a message to the people. And once they heard it, they stated that what they heard was the voice of a God and not a man. See, God knew Herod's heart. Herod did not give glory or give God the glory, and he was struck down. He died a few days later. He accepted that honor and that praise. What a contrast between Paul and Barnabas, who are trying to stop. They're trying to stop this worship of them. They're trying to stop the sacrifice being made to them. They're saying, don't honor us. We are of the same nature. But here comes the brilliant and brief message of Paul. It's brief and it's brilliant. He is a missionary at heart. But we have, a good, we have good news to tell you. As they're rushing in, please don't sacrifice. We're men and we have news. We have good, good news to tell you. Paul is going to introduce a bit of truth. He's going to introduce a bit of gospel here. But first, what he does in these verses, he's saying you guys need to turn from these things. You know the word turn, repent. You need to turn from these vain things. These are vanities. What you were worshiping is made of metal and it's made of wood. They're vain. You're worshiping in vain. See, Paul is challenging their worldview, which is what we call polytheism. Polytheism is the worship of multiple gods. And the Greek mythology, what we know as Greek mythology, this is what the people in Lystra, these Gentiles, this is what they are worshiping. Or who they are worshiping, excuse me. He's introducing what we call monotheism. He says, I want to tell you about God. Singular, not plural. But what he attaches to it is amazing. He says, I want to tell you about the living God. Because the God you're worshiping is not. In fact, I'm going to say it again. I believe this priest sat around with his feet up. There was nothing to do because they weren't real. These gods did nothing. But the living God that Paul is introducing here, along with Barnabas, well, this is special. He says, not only is he a living God, he is the creator of heaven, earth, and the sea, and all that is in them. All that is in them. You know, the Bible tells us in Acts 17, he says, for in him we live and move and have our being. Paul wants them to understand something. Paul wants them to understand that, guess what? You can see what I see as humans. We can look at the heavens and we can see all that is in them. We can look at the earth and we can see all that is in the earth. 
And we just went, got through fishing. We were out in the sea. We know what's in the sea. We can see what's in the sea. These are real things that our eyes all can take in. The Creator, the one living God, He is the one who made this. He is the one who performed that miracle. Zeus and Hermes did not. Now, they were misguided, weren't they? But look at verse 16. Look at verse 16 again. In past generations, He allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Folks, there was only one nation that was not allowed to walk in their own ways. This nation was set apart and was to be an example for all other nations. All other nations were supposed to look at this one nation, and you guessed it, it's the nation of Israel, who failed on their part. They were to look at this nation and want to come and know their God, to live their way. And they failed. So God allowed these Gentiles to go their own way, and their own way was Zeus and Hermes in the city of Lystra. Now, we got to talk about Gentiles for a second. Yes, I am getting to Thanksgiving, but let's talk about Gentiles for a second because I want to build this up. This is important. Romans 2, 14 through 15, we're talking about being misguided. They were misguided in who they were attributing their worship to. They were misguided in who they were attributing their thanks to. Okay? So let's look at this. Romans 2, 14 and 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Let's talk about this. Gentiles, let's look at this whole planet. In any given neighborhood, you could worship multiple gods. You could worship the one living God. You don't have to worship God at all. You don't believe in Him at all. There is no God. There is a moral code. There is something written on the hearts of people. When they wake up, they say, you know what? I don't want to murder today. I'm not going to murder anyone today. There are people who go about their day, guess what? They don't want to rape and pillage and steal. There's people who love their parents and want to honor their parents. People that don't believe in God. People that worship multiple. There is something written on the hearts of people. By the way, this is a great introduction when you're talking to somebody that doesn't believe in God. Because why live proper? Why live good? Where's that moral code come from? Where's love, that longing to be loved, come from? Where's that desire to be loved and, and want to be able to live forever? Where does all this come from? See, we're designed like this. It's written on our hearts. And the Gentiles, it's, we're, it's plain to see. Because it also says what? Their conscience bears witness. Their conscience bears witness. They have conflicting thoughts. Isn't that interesting? Oh, I don't believe in God, but man, I'm really bothered by what I just did or what I'm about to do. Let me go back. Romans 1, 19 and 20. This is a little bit before, obviously, but this goes right along. Romans 1, 19 and 20 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And what? And the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Gentiles who are worshiping in Lystra, Zeus and Hermes, are without excuse. Why? Because just like what Paul said, what has been made is evident. 
you're without excuse because what has been made can be seen in the heavens, it can be seen on the earth, and it can be seen in the sea, just like he said. Look up, look around, look in the sea. Everything that's been made brings light to that there's got to be a God. It has to be, there has to be something. So you're right, but you're, you're misguided in your worship. You're on the right track, but you're misguided in your worship. See, they're without excuse because the conscience bears witness. They're without excuse because the divine nature of God can be seen in all things made. That's why Paul brings up the living God and the created order of things. Start thinking, Lystra. Start thinking, Gentiles. I know that God allowed you to go this way, but now I'm going to introduce the living God to you and show you where you've been misguided. See, this is kind of cool. Their idolatry was actually a sign of their innate knowledge of him. They did not look to humanity. It went beyond humanity. Humans can't do these things. Humans didn't create the sun and make it rain. Humans didn't save my child from sickness. No, they knew better. They attributed this to a higher power, but they were misguided in this higher power. They were misguided in the identification of this higher power. And Paul is going to evangelize them now. And what's really cool, if you've noticed, Paul did not use Scripture as he does with his Jewish audiences, as he did in the synagogues. He did not use Scripture. He spoke theological concepts. Reminds me of Jesus in parables, right? He spoke theological concepts. He did this in Athens. In Acts 17, Paul goes to a place called Athens, and as he enters, there's gods and idols everywhere. And he introduces, right? He introduces the gospel, and they say, hey, come speak to, to our leaders. So he goes to this place called Mars Hill, and he begins to speak about one of their idols. He goes, you guys are right. All these others are wrong, but you are right about one. There's one you've called the unknown God. Let me tell you who that is. I'm going to make him known now. See, Paul used these concepts to introduce the gospel. And he was doing the same thing in Lystra. Okay? This is where we're at. This is what you have to understand. Now, here's the meat and potatoes. Everybody look at verse 17 and 18. Verse 17, obviously, is going to be our key verse today. Verse 17, yet he did not leave himself, talking about God, he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. Do you see that verse 17? He did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven, fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. His witness is his good. His witness is his good. Our conscience bears witness to God. The created order of heaven's earth and sea and all that is in them bears witness to God. My thoughts that accuse me and excuse me bear witness to God. Am I attributing all the glory, honor, and my thanks to God? Now, he says that he gives us rains, fruitful seasons. They satisfy our hearts and food with gladness. And here we're coming into our Thanksgiving message. Lystra set it up for us here. This is not a complete presentation of the gospel, guys. This is not a complete presentation of truth. 
Paul is evangelizing people with no biblical background. None. Right? But what he's doing, he is simply linking their way of life, he's simply linking their common human experiences to the truth of Scripture. Tim Carmichael at the missions conference last Sunday in the sanctuary told us the same thing. Folks, missionaries don't land in a plane or get off a boat or out of a car and immediately say, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. They don't do that. Tim Carmichael was very, very, he described it very well. He said, no, we have to be integrated into the culture. We have to learn their ways. We have to figure out what's offensive and whatnot. We have to understand what words they're using so that we can begin to translate and speak. It takes time. Tim will tell you, they look at the human experiences that are common to each, they look at the way of life, and then they begin to link the truth of Scripture to it. That's missions. And Paul is the greatest missionary. Paul is doing the same thing in Lystra, but he does something just awesome. i got to talk about these rains for a second. I ate a lot of humble pie this week, I told you, and you're going to learn some things about me that you may not be happy about. I want to read a verse to you. Psalm 147.8. Psalm 147.8. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. Let's stop there. Because I'm extremely convicted. It's God who prepares rain. Now, as a child, I hated the rain with all my heart. It ruined ball games. We couldn't play. I couldn't play outside. Events got canceled. I got stuck inside with my brother and sister. Oh, that was a nightmare. It rained. It rained. I hated the rain. I never gave God thanks for the rain. Missions conference the other night, first night. Y'all remember that thing? That, you remember that water pouring out? I was only outside for 20, 25 seconds, soaked head to toe. The whole night I was wet and miserable. Not with the conference, just, you know, wet clothes are horrible. I never gave God thanks. In fact, I was agitated and kind of angry that the rain came at that time. It was blowing so hard. And I was so aggravated. I can tell you now wholeheartedly I didn't give God thanks for the rain, ever. And here's my first slice of humble pie because it says right here that He prepares rain for the earth. So I looked it up. My goodness, I know He stopped rain in the past. Do you realize it'd only be a matter of time before our earth became desolate without rains? It starts with rain. He prepares it for the earth, plants, animals, us. We have got to have rain in order to sustain and be maintained in this life. Desolation. In time, desolation would happen. And here I am, angry at God for preserving me. I'm angry at God for filling lakes, ponds, and oceans. I'm angry at God for plants growing that I'm probably going to eat, most likely, on my table. I'm aggravated with them. And I thought to myself when I read this verse, oh, I'm not going to tell you the names I called myself. But I was humbled. Let's look at this next one, because this is the next one that got me. Psalm 65, 9-13. You visit the earth and you water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly. 
settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Again, I felt this small. If you look at what rains do, Rain is the only reason we can find ourselves in fruitful seasons. If you want to work backwards, the Bible tells us that we're satisfied with food and gladness. Where did that come from? Well, that came from a fruitful season. Well, how that fruitful season? Well, that came from God. Well, that Because God prepared it. He prepared it for the earth. It all comes back to God. And sometimes we are no different than the people of Lystra. We are no different than Gentiles who worship Zeus and Hermes, we may not worship them, but we're no different because our thanks is misguided. We attribute or lack of, right? We don't attribute thanks to God. I read this verse too. You probably know this one, Matthew 5, 45. For he makes his sunrise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. So God, what you're telling me here is that sun is going to shine on both Gentile and Jew, on evil and good. That sun is going to shine on all people. So I'm without excuse, and they are without excuse. Yes, you are correct. You are both without excuse. So you're telling me, God, that the just is going to feel and receive the rains just as the unjust? Yeah. And we both are responsible for seeing and bearing that witness. Yep, that's my witness. In fact, the title of my message, His Provision is His Witness. We're without excuse. Our conscience, our eyes taking in the glory of what's been made, right? Our thoughts accusing us, that conviction. And now we know that regardless of we're just or unjust, we have the reins, we have the sun, we are without excuse. And this is what Paul wanted to relay to them. We understand you're misguided in your worship. Let me introduce the living God who you should be worshiping. You saw a great miracle. I realize that. I saw it too. The living God is who made this man spring up and walk like that. So let me tell you more about him. I want to talk about Thanksgiving a little bit though right now because we just just realized how important rains are. We realized just how important rains are. And, you know, don't acknowledge it, but think for a second. Has anyone been thanking God for rain? I know farmers do constantly, but have you been thanking God for rain? I have not. I'm going to put that out there. Look at this verse, Psalm 145, 16. This is talking about rain now. You guys know I don't like it. You open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. From the smallest plant to the largest mammal, every living thing is satisfied. Why? Because God opens his hand. God prepared rain for earth. And Paul is using a very specific thing. Listen, I know today we have factories that make these horrible chemically produced foods. They can make foods from anything. I get it. But folks, back then, you either fished for your food, you hunted for it, or you grew it. And if things go bad in our country, we may be going back to hunting, fishing, and growing our own food. That's what it was. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, without rain, there is no crop. If they're without rain, there are no animals. Without rain, everything would dry up. You open your hand and you satisfy. Look at Philippians 4.19. It 
And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Not only does He supply every need, not only does He satisfy our desires, His love, His care is in His provision, which is His witness. We are without excuse. Everyone that's ever lived on this planet is without excuse, including believers right here today. And I thought about this. I thought about the satisfaction we get from God. I thought about the wonders of of, of how He covers the earth with His clouds and how He sustains us through His abundance. And I found this, Psalm 107. Psalm 107, verses 1 through 9. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Where did that good come from again? Remember there was good in what He does? Now we're seeing not only that, it's who He is. Give thanks for the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. For He satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul He fills with good things. Not only is He good, He fills us with good things. He gives us who He is, and that is good. Folks, the longing soul those who are hungry, those who are thirsty. It's God who satisfies. Are we giving proper thanks to God? I recently had a conversation with a gentleman, and we were talking about the subject matter. And it got to the point where it's like, yeah, you, you thank God for what you have and what you don't have and what you've escaped and things you don't see. He goes, wait a minute. If I'm doing that, then I'd be thanking God all day long. And I said, Exactly. Exactly. You would be thanking God all day long if you truly knew what He is doing for you. And I thought about this over and over. I kept going back to the story of these Gentiles who had misguided worship. They worshipped gods that were Greek mythology made up. Maybe they carved an image of metal or wood. I don't know what it it would look like. They worshipped these vain gods in vain, these vanities, but they knew something. They knew a higher power was responsible for this man springing up and walking. They knew that there's someone responsible for the rains. They knew there was somebody responsible for the fruitful seasons. And this is where Paul comes in and says, yes, it is the living God creator of all things. You're not giving credit where credit is due. And I kept thinking about Thanksgiving. I don't know why it kept popping in my head. Maybe because it's going to happen this week. And I love the food. But I kept saying to myself, Mark Tanner, You are no different than these misguided people that are worshiping gods. You're not worshiping their gods. You are truly worshiping the living God. You love them with all your heart. But you are misguided in giving thanks. One of them was the rains. I want to read this illustration. I am a, uh, a fan of Charles Spurgeon. I have a lot of his sermons. And there was this one I read that I thought, wow, this is really cool. Let me read it to you. I did not write this. This is from Charles Spurgeon. 
He said, you have heard perhaps of a Puritan who met his son, each of them traveling some 10 or 12 miles to meet the other. The son said to his father, Father, I am thankful to God for a very remarkable providence that I have had on my journey here. My horse has stumbled three times with me, and yet I am unhurt. The Puritan replied, my dear son, I have to thank God for an equally remarkable providence on my way to you, for my horse did not once stumble all the way. If we happen to be in an accident by railway, we feel so grateful that our limbs are not broken. But should we not be thankful when there is no accident? Is not that the better thing of the two? If you were to fall into poverty and someone were to restore you to your former position in trade, you would be very grateful. Should you not be grateful that you have not fallen into poverty? Listen to this. Bless God for His unknown benefits. Extol Him for favors that you do not see. Always giving thanks to God for all things. And this is where... My next slice of humble pie came because I felt this big when I realized I am just like those people in Lystra. I am not attributing thanks to the living God. I'm not doing it. I told you about the rains, right? This week has been crazy for me. Every time I go outside, every time I drive, every time I I thank God for this and I thank God for that. I I am so aware of thanking God for everything that if you walk next to me, you probably thought I was crazy. Because I'm thanking God for everything because I'm telling you, this thing has punched me right in the face. There was a close call. Caroline, my youngest daughter, and I were heading down 158. I got a road right, finally. We were heading down 158. And this guy, you know how you can pull out and stop in the middle and you wait for traffic and you kind of turn in, you come out? Sheriff, I wish you would have been there that day. This guy comes out and he doesn't stop. And I am about to be T-boned with my precious little daughter right behind me, driver's side. I had to do one of those maneuvers where you know, you know, you're fishtailing, your tires are all screeching and all that. There's smoke from the tires. We were we had to do this maneuver like a stunt driver. And I was in shock. I had to pull over and I was thanking God so much that we were not killed. I mean, there wasn't even a scratch on the car, which I cared less about. I was only concerned with her and, and myself. When we got to Danville, that's where we were heading, again, I was praying. And you know at nighttime after things happen and you kind of sit there and everything's like, that's when it all hits you and you're like, oh, we could have been killed. My little girl could have. All that stuff was sinking in and I got emotional. And I was thanking God, thanking God, thanking God. But I'm going to tell you a truth. Caroline and I have driven hundreds of times together since the beginning of this year. And every time we pull in the driveway safe and sound, I haven't thanked God once. I haven't thanked God once for bringing us home safe. I only thanked him when I observed that close call. I only thanked him when I observed what was going on. I didn't thank him for the unknown benefits. I didn't thank him for the favors I didn't see. I haven't thanked God once every time I pulled in the driveway with my children safe and sound. And again, my next slice of humble pie. That's why I've been crazy thanking God. I am trying to make up for lost time. I did not attribute thanks. I did not give him the glory and honor, just like the people in Lystra. I was misguided in my thanks. I only thought it was necessary when an event happened and I could see it with my eyes that I was saved. I standing here today, I should be thanking God I have zero diseases. I can't move as good, but I can walk and I can run and I can jump. I might look funny doing it, but I can still do those things and I should be thanking God for right where I'm at and for the things I can do. 
Not looking back, oh yeah, I used to be able to do this. I should be thanking God exactly for where I am and who I am right now. Am I doing that? Or am I misguided in my thanks? It was a close call. And I had every right to thank God for that close call saving us. But I also had the responsibility to thank Him for every time we made it home safe. I want to tell you what happened at the end of this before we close. I have one more illustration. But the same people, well, there's some from Antioch, same people came from Iconium that wanted to hurt Paul and Barnabas. They did come to the city and stirred up trouble. They stoned him. They stoned Paul. They dragged him out of the city thinking he was dead. And of course, the Bible doesn't say it. I, this is my personal opinion, just so you understand. Uh, the, there's a group of men, apostles that had gathered around him, and Paul got up. I think it was a miracle. But he rose back up. And you know what he did? He didn't go, man, this is, this is a bad job. Missions is horrible. He got right back to ministry. Right back to ministry. And I'm sure Paul was thankful for every single thing that happened. Thank you, God, for every stone that hit me. Because that's who he was. I mean, he was, he was he's hook, line, and sinker for God. So, I was looking for an illustration that I had read a while back about the Oregon Trail because I always thought, wow, that is, that is huge. So I want to share it with you in closing. There was a party of pioneers on the Oregon Trail. They had suffered for weeks. They had suffered for weeks from a scarcity of water and grass for their animals. Nobody thinks of the animals, by the way. When we watch old westerns and stuff, people are like cooking around the campfire. Guess what? Your mules, your donkeys, your horses, they got to eat and drink too. And on this trail, there was a scarcity of water and grass. Therefore, the wagons couldn't be pulled because the animals were too weak. Most of the wagons had broken down, causing endless delays, and it was, there was stifling heat. It was very hot. So they were miserable. They felt a, a feeling of fretfulness and futility. Um, uh, they were, their optimism was gone. Their cheer, it was gone. Courage was a limited supply on this Oregon Trail. One night, the leaders called a meeting to air their complaints. Hey, let's, let's get together and just talk about everything that's going wrong. They wanted to air their complaints. So when they gathered around the campfire, one man stood up and said, before we commence our grief session, don't you think we should at least first thank God that he has brought us this far with no loss of life, with no serious trouble from the native tribes, and that we have enough strength to left to finish our journey? Should we thank God first? So all the settlers agreed, and they prayed. It was a brief prayer, but they prayed. After that, all that could, heard, could be heard, excuse me, were the cries of a distant pack of wolves because there was stone silence around that campfire. No one wanted to air any grievances because they felt that um, they just weren't important enough to voice anymore. They suddenly realized if they couldn't be satisfied, hear this, if they couldn't be satisfied with what they'd received, they could at least be thankful for what they'd escaped. Now that hits home. It's easy to see where we are blessed in what we receive, but are we ever thankful for what we've escaped? And this again brings us to being misguided, misguided in our uh, thanks and who we are attributing or not attributing this thanks to, just like the Gentiles and Lystra. Now, I love that Oregon Trail illustration. I truly do. See, thankfulness 
enabled them to see the mercies of God that they had been overlooking. And I'm going to go ahead and say it. You are with me in this. We overlook the mercies of God all the time. We do. Because His mercies, his mercies and His riches are endless. We thank God for the good things that happen to us. But you know what we do? We fail to express gratitude for the bad things that because of His protection do not happen to us. Just like Caroline and I pulled into that driveway hundreds and hundreds of times, we fail to express what didn't happen, what we've escaped. And it's a shame because you know what? We're without excuse. Call yourself good. Call yourself just. The sun rises on you and it rains on you. Especially if you're here at Missions Conference. It definitely rained on you. But know this. We are without excuse. Just like the evil. Just like the unjust. We are without excuse. We may, be not be wor- we may not be worshiping other gods. But are we attributing, truly attributing our thanks to the one living God, creator of all thanks? Or are we overlooking these mercies? Are we forgetting about these unknown benefits, these these favors that we don't see, this protecting grace that we don't realize is happening to us? That's what I want our Thanksgiving this week to be, why I want it to be different. I was trying to figure out what could be different about this Thanksgiving. It's easy to say, God, you healed me of cancer. God, I can walk. God, I paid all my bills. But when you pay all your bills and squeak by and can still get food, do you thank God for the months that you're in excess? Where you paid all your bills and you have plenty for food? Or are we only thanking God when we see and observe these things? That's what I want to be different about this Thanksgiving. Folks, I'm going to say it to you. His provision is His witness. The rains are His witness. What comes out of those rains? Paul said fruitful seasons. They are His witness. The satisfaction that you receive from those beautiful seasons because of the rain, the gladness of food, right? That gladness you feel, that satisfaction, it comes from God because His provision is His witness. We need to identify and be thankful for all things, even what we don't see. We all made it here today unharmed. Praise God. Let's thank Him for that. When we get home, let's thank God that we made it home. Let's thank God that we're going to be able to eat food today. It's endless, the praise and thanks we can give. But Christians, we are without excuse. We too can be misguided in our thanks. Let's let this Thanksgiving be different. Let's remember the things that we've overlooked. Let's look at the mercies that we tend to forget happen to us every single minute of every single day. His provision is His witness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful We are grateful for the endless mercies. We are grateful for your riches that you give us through your son, Jesus. Father, you supply every need. You meet our desires. You know what we need before we even ask it. Father, your protection of us is endless. Father, your love and care for our lives, where we are today right now, we should attribute the most praise and and thanks that we can just muster up. Because you brought us to this place. You brought us here. Fathers, there's going to be surgeries. There's going to be accidents. There's going to be traumas. There's going to be tough, tough times in each of our lives. We don't know what's going to befall us, but we do know 
that your provision is your witness, and we are without excuse. We are to give thanks in all things. Father, let us rejoice in the good times, but let us remember in the bad times that you've always been there. You always care and love for us. Your provision is always there, even when we do not see it. Father God, that's what I'm praying for for this Thanksgiving, that we look at these beautiful benefits that we don't see, these favors, Lord, that are unknown to us, the protecting grace, the mercy you show us when we realize, Father, what could have been, what could have happened, that you've protected us, the things we've escaped. Father, you are a good God. You are the only good in this world, and not only are you good, you do good, and that good is your witness. Father, the most glorious thing today about this is that you use us. Father, we're going to be around family members and loved ones and friends this Thanksgiving holiday. And the good you show us, the love and care, your witness in our lives, Father, we in turn become a witness for you. The benefits that we receive, the riches and the grace, we become, we become a witness for you. Father, let us shine this holiday. Let us be a witness around that table for you because of your provision being a witness to us. Father God, we love you. We love you and we thank you for everything you do for us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.